G'day and welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Our guest today is Duncan Armstrong. Duncan burst into Australian households when he became one of only three Australian Olympic champions at the Seoul Games in 1988 alongside hurdler Debbie Flintoff-King and the Hockey Roos. Duncan broke the 200 freestyle world record winning Australia's 100th medal in Olympic competition. Teaming up early with the charismatic and incomparable coach of champions Laurie Lawrence, Duncan enjoyed 10 years in the famous green and gold tracksuit for Australia. Nowadays, Duncan divides his time between raising his five children with his wife Rebecca, media work, corporate coaching, charitable partnerships, and his services to the community as a committed Christian. I'd like to welcome you all today to the podcast. It's an amazing discussion with Duncan, but enough from me. I'll hand over to Duncan. Duncan, thank you so much for your time today. I uh, appreciate you giving up what is a beautiful morning here in Brisbane, and I know it's probably the same up on the um, sunny coast. Thanks for being here, mate. Thanks very much for having me, mate. I, uh, it's a real pl- privilege. And I was on the beach this morning, so i um, been up at the sunny coast about 18 months, and we're still utilising the beach, my wife and I, to uh, sort ourselves out at times, defrag from the kids, and uh, utilise that beautiful sunshine in the wintertime here. It's been great. Right. Yeah, like like I said before we started, I don't know how you do it. I would be on holiday mode the whole time up there, but uh, best of luck to you. I'm sure you had a good morning and a good start to the day. A coffee is always a good way to go. Duncan, let's get into the questions here. So your leadership and its beginnings, can you walk me through that? Yeah, no, interesting. Like uh, leadership's a funny topic. I'm a specialist more than anything else, Eric. I've been part of uh, amazing teams, elite teams, you know, like Queensland teams, um, Australian Olympic teams, off to the Olympic Games, World Championships, Pan Packs, uh, Commonwealth Games, and and had some great success. So I've been part of teams where I've been exposed to hardcore leadership, like the Laurie Lawrence style of leadership, the uh, Bill Sweetenham, uh, head coach for Australia, you know, the Don Talbot, head coach for Australia. These sort of leadership models um, were in my face a great deal of the time as a team member. So I was able to witness how people lead themselves and the question for me all the time as a specialist um, and an individual athlete was how am I leading myself? What is my leadership capability when um, we're in this incredibly tough environment of, of a charge towards an Olympic gold medal in swimming where you have to do hundreds of laps a week, week in, week out, uh, make some tough choices in terms of where you spend your time as a teenager and what does that look like? And then into your early adulthood um, where you might do the comparison test with people who have... Uh, are doing a trade or finishing school, going to university, parties, um, social times, um, holidays, um, getaways, uh, sleeping in, you know, simple stuff. Um, so how do you lead yourself? You know, what is your leadership traits in terms of setting a goal, putting a strategy down, tactically moving towards it with all the little things that make you successful as a specialist? Um, and how do you, how do you um, go on that journey? So my leadership journey didn't start until I was well into my um almost 30s, where the first team I led um, became my family. So I had my family at, uh, started my family at 21, 22. And so I had my two boys with my first wife and um, that marriage broke down um, after about three years of marriage. So again, um, becoming the head of the household in a very sort of different way um, than a traditional family home. So that that's where my sort of leadership journey began, where I transitioned from being a team member and maybe the captain of the team, which I was in the Olympic Games in 1992, um, to to the leader of my family. So I've never led big teams. I've never been um, the guy who's written up the strategy for a team to follow and planted his flag and say, this is the hill that we die on. This is the leadership journey that we're on. So I've been part of teams through all of that area. But um, when I look around at my leadership journey, um, it's really been about how do I lead myself? What are the traits that I want to be known as when leading my family? How do I invest my leadership qualities into my children? So if they choose the leadership path, they've got a choice in that. And I've been fairly uh, open and honest about my shortcomings in leadership and always been really transparent to my children to sort of say, I don't know that, or I've never done that. I don't have experience in that. Let's journey through that together instead of trying to be the be-all and end-all super dad. Um, that has the answers in everything. Um, I've always gone with a curiosity mindset to my kids and sort of said, you know, let's work on this together. Let's let's journey through this together. Let's learn together and let's see where that ends up and being okay with mistakes, failures, uh, mishaps, uh, problems, um, 
uh, and things like that. So my leadership journey in in the classic sense, I haven't led a lot of people, but uh, I think I've developed myself to be able to lead myself to, to inspire other people um, in many ways, shapes and form. And my motivation of speaking, I guess, is that in action, that I stand on stage in front of hundreds of people, thousands of people a year and talk about the traits of leadership, strategizing, uh, tactical, uh, tactical outcomes, um, what do you stand for? What are your belief systems? Do your belief systems actually um, support who and what you are? Have you done the work to actually pull apart who who and what you are as an individual? And therefore, are you a leader or are you a valued team member or are you an individual specialist? So what are you and who are you and where do your traits come from? You know, what does your background say about who you are now and what does it mean in the future? So I, I talk motivationally and inspirationally around those topics and the challenge is, is absolutely there. Who, who and what you are and what can you get done today? Thank you, Duncan. That um, sets a nice platform and there's um, any number of questions that are running around in my mind here. I might go back to the idea about um, in in your pathway to, you identified this by saying it wasn't until my 30s that I was in that leadership position but i would i would argue the counter to that is you were building the traits and understanding what it is for self-management and self-leadership to get to point x and where this is important for someone like me who has an, an ongoing and quite deep interest in leadership and trying to learn from others is that piece around self-reflective practice it sounds like you've got all that stuff wrapped up and so it for me, leadership comes in multiple forms. So if you're not leading a thousand people, does it mean that you can't practice the art of leadership? It's um, those numbers don't really mean as much as they used to to someone like me who's trying to understand how do you get the process better? And you've given us some insights into that for yourself. And you've, you've kind of touched on the next topic area, which is how you define leadership. But before we go there, I might ask you this as an elite athlete, as someone who was a specialist in your field in swimming, uh, was a specialist in how you manage yourself. Did you ever look at um, elite sports people in teams and wonder what do they have that I can leverage off that I don't get as an individual? And I asked this as a, as a someone look outside looking in, fascinated by um, professional-level athletes and thinking what, what a – were an ideal and also crappy job for a coach to be there with his elite people and go, how do I manage people that really don't need maybe technical ins instruction, but more the understanding of what does strategy look like? And, and you mentioned that in the start. So what did you ever wonder that with elite athletes in team sports? Did you leverage something from them or was that not, was that something that didn't come to the fore as you were um, going through your journey as an elite athlete? Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question, mate, and I understand why you ask it because as an individual athlete, you're always looking over the fence at team sports because they seem to be having so much fun, you know, <laughs> and swimming with your head in the bucket of the water, swimming up and down and up and down and down. You're not really talking to anybody. So as a swimmer, you know, I think you have um, FOMO. You think I think you have, you know, the, the, the trap of comparison raging most of the time. And, and I'd look at the rugby league players and the pro sports guys and, you know, even the golfers. You know, they're out there talking to people in their everyday while they're at work. Um, the tennis players, you know, you you look at the team sports and go, you know, why couldn't I do a team sport? You know, is it too late for me to do a team sport? Uh, I know since I've retired out of the pool, I've done a lot of team sports and thoroughly enjoyed it and enjoyed the fun atmosphere and the laughing and the because the, there, there's something. See about for me, I still look at sport as when we play sport. So for me, it's still uh, very much like you get out there and play. And so the individual sports have always been that to me, where the, sorry, the, the team sports have always been that to me, whereas the individual sports sort of like you start boiling down like a hard-boiled uh, lolly until it gets to a point where there's just no fat on it. And there's, it's just about rigorous behaviour. It's just about rigorous mindset. And there's not a lot of play anymore because it's all up to you how fast you go with the work that you do and the understanding of who and what you are and the mental ability and, you know, you, you, your routine comes down to this psychotic 
behavior list that nobody else can keep up with. And that's when you win. And so unfortunately, the formula winning can be so narrow in the results column for an individual athlete that you become basically neurotic, psychotic, unfriendly, and and very, very difficult to uh, live with and be with. Okay, but that's the only way to get into it because all the other psychopaths are trying to get into the same column as you. So it's it's a really, really interesting dynamic and there's only a certain type of intellect that can do that. Uh, and I say that tongue in cheek. But um, when I going back to your question, when I look at team sports, there's an, there's an enormous amount to learn from them from an individual athlete point of view. Um, but again, it comes down to how much do you trust your teammate? Because when I think about all the hard work I put into that narrow column to have that race that takes less than two minutes on one day every four years. You know, I'm not leaving it up to a teammate who might not have the same. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's almost a glitch for team sports because maybe I don't trust myself or trust them enough to sort of, hey, we're all in this together. And maybe that's a statement I couldn't bring onto myself. So individual sport was it for me because I couldn't imagine training for four years for a result and because my teammate drops a ball, we lose. And so for me, it's sort of like, oh, gee whiz, that's uh, that's a big ask. You know, how, how do you overcome that? Now, I know that it'll be my turn to drop the ball and my teammates will pick me up. And I, I know the dynamics of team, but I think where the disconnect for me was um, I didn't want to rely on anybody else. I wanted to rely on myself. Now, that's got problems too, because like the moment I drop the ball on myself, I don't get the four-year win. So I've got to live with that for the rest of my life. So again, it, it comes down to that sort of like mindset of like, how do you navigate that? How do you learn to navigate that? And um, what are the tools you put in place to make sure that you're not, you know, in the corner, in the fetal position because you've, you've had a vital loss, you know? So there's there's a lot of growth in that and a lot of understanding. But going back to your question, I've always looked over the cubicle to the team sports and thought that looks like a lot of fun. But then when the whips are cracking, I sort of sit there going, now I don't want to rely on all those people. I might love them. And they might love me and I might be a great team man, but when the whips are cracking, maybe I just didn't want to put myself at risk to somebody else's mistakes um, for something that might be out of my control. So it could come back to the control freak inside me to force the result into a column that I can live with, good or bad. But um, those team sports, we did learn a lot from them because you get you get some, you know, wallaby captain in like John Eels to speak to the swim team or... Um, or a cricket or a cricket skipper or or someone from one of the Olympic sports like the hockey guys or the water polo guys. And it's a fascinating journey that team sports go on. Um, and there was so much value when they talked about what they think about, how they approach the work, how they do their leadership, what leadership traits they bring into it, how they're able to let go of a, of a team member who's acting poorly as a, as a leader. So there's a lot of really good lessons in there for our swimming and our swim team because it's a paradoxical thing, the swim team, because we travel as a team, we work out as a team, but, mate, when they call you up on the blocks, you look around, where's your team? Nowhere. It's you on the block, two and a half, lane, two and a half metres of lane rope and water, and that's your environment. That's who's, who you've got to rely on. So as you work as a team, got your coach, got your all your, your medical team, you've got your parents, you've got your dietitians and everything, like there's your team. And they help you get in the water, but when the whips are cracking, it's your arms and legs that actually have to do the job. So it's a sort of a paradox. Whereas when in rugby, you're never not in a team environment. You know, you, you train as a team, you eat as a team, you travel as a team, you win as a team, or you lose as a team. You know, you never, you never miss it. You never turn around. You're the only one on the rugby field. It doesn't work like that. So I've always been fascinated by how teams work, what value set they bring to their leadership in that team. And how do I apply that? How do I learn a lesson from that to actually apply? So again, you, you're this junkie for information as you drag it to your own performance, as you drag it into your own team, as you try things, it works, stays, try things, doesn't work, it's gone quickly. So you try every fad that's coming through, diet, physiology, psychology, teamwork, leadership, no matter who's got something to teach you, you try it, you try to institute it. If it's resilient enough to stay in your program, it stays, okay, it becomes a feature. But if it's no good, that fad goes quickly. That that's very interesting. I I started to think as you as you went through that response, Duncan, around how do leaders deal with failure in the team environment or singly? And you've given a good um, reference point there with those that 
practice in individual sports versus the team where when a team loses, you lose as a team and everyone gets to bear the burden of the loss. And um, I know that coaches in in, in teams having uh, seen um, soccer and futsal coaching in, in my travels, but not at the elite level, so I'm not talking about that, but um, the coach will unpack where the weaknesses were and may not make that verbal because you will isolate some players in a team. Whereas when you're on your own, you're really only relying on yourself. And I get that you've got all that team behind you, but once in, in the swimming context, you're it when you're on that block. And if it doesn't work out, I can understand the pressure that we would put on yourself to analyze where did it go wrong and how can I do better? And that, yeah, that has its own set of uh, unique problems. And um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it um, a negative thing to go down that individual pathway, and I don't think you painted it that way, but the the com- almost complete reliance on self is an issue, and you translate that to the leadership space. If you believe you're on your own as a leader, then you're going to make your life exceedingly difficult, and that's where all of the lessons that you're talking about, self-management and understanding you are leading other teams, you need to maybe humanise yourself in that process, I get, I get the lesson you're trying to teach there, and it makes a lot of sense to me, at least. Um, again, trying to learn here, Duncan. So, you've given some hints as to the next topic area. Your definition of leadership. What What is that, mate? My definition of leadership is that a great question? Because like it's such a moving target. Like all our experiences leading up to actually being able to answer that question are different. Our family experience, our school experience, our education. Uh, the teams that we're in, the individual things that we've done, the leadership that we've attempted. Because you know, you can go back to your primary school, grade one, grade two, you know, you become the class monitor. It's a leadership position. How'd that go for you? You know, or you you have to lead the class in grade three or four across to some ceremony, or uh, your class wins a prize and they stick, stick you up the front to go and get the prize as the as the school as a class captain. You know, so where we're shaped by these experiences. So when you come to, you know, what's the definition? What was the question again? What's the definition? What's my definition of leadership? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? How do you define it? And again, I ask this not to get a textbook definition. And my experience in this, Duncan, is everyone has a nuanced definition of what it is. And if there was one agreed on definition, I, I don't think I'd exist doing the podcast so i will rely on your experience of it and yeah I'm, I'm just interested to know and why this um is very interesting for someone like me is you come from the world of elite sport so you'll have a slightly different lens on this i would think but i don't know what the definition is so i'll leave that to you to share that with us if you can with that sort of preamble and chat you know and releasing of the tension <laughs> Okay, my definition of leadership, I think, is the ability to control yourself, to make yourself uh, worthy of a group of people that want to follow you. So I think it's your ability to project strength, openness, authenticity. It's a big one. Um, To move a group of people into a task and give them something to follow. I think that's my definition of leadership too. Um, but, well, it's obvious, like, you know, anybody can get a group of people to follow. You know, you've got to be, got to, no, that's not true. See, this is a great question. Like, it's, you know, we can talk for 15 minutes. It's, it's worth it's worth the conversation because I can see the, I can see the grey matter going. I, well, the moment the moment I snap, snap into what a leader is, and I project basically something in my mind, you know, straight away I'm going into charisma, or I'm going into strategy. I'm going, has he got a strategy? Has she got a strategy? Has she got charisma? Are they are they painting a good picture? Are they articulate? Are they selling it? Are they pitching it? You know, what does the group look like? What's the direction they're moving in? Um, or is it just uh, the leadership to gather people together to stand still? You know, that, you know, why yeah, right, it, right, yeah. Why does women have to be? Part of it, you know, is it just basically projecting a projecting some sort of ability to bring people together? 
you know, like a Nelson Mandela rather than sort of like, hey, you got to move someone, got to have a strategy as a four-year plan. It's this, 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 follow me, here's my flag. Ah, uh, the inspirational leader. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, these different forms of leadership. So the definition of a leader or definition of leadership, you know, my mind immediately goes to, you know, my default, I want a charismatic leader, I want an articulate leader, he's got to have a good plan, she's got to, she's got to be able to lead people, she's got to, we've got to arrive somewhere, we've got, to, we can't just move, we can't be just a group on the move, you know, there's got to be a destination. So for me, it very quickly becomes this wide results column of leadership, right? When the definition of leadership is, can be complete polar opposite of that. A leader brings people together so they can take a breath. Yeah, and right. Then, okay. Yeah, yep, yep. So all of a sudden, you know, you can, depending on the people and depending on the environment and depending on the outcome, what is the leadership? But going back to what I think, I, I think leadership is someone who has control of themselves enough to project uh, qualities that people would like to follow. Yeah, that that um, that's interesting. Uh, when you started talking about your definition and again could see the 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 gray matter going there you talked about being worthy of other people that that's an interesting statement it 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 um takes my headspace to a couple of questions and i think the one that's outstanding for me is when you talk about being worthy to the group that uh denotes or at least clarifies in my mind about being vulnerable and demonstrating that you're a human being and that to me, for me, uh, this is just a personal view, is, is the ultimate form of that is that although you're leading people doing all the things that you're talking about, having a goal, being charismatic, being empathetic, being authentic, all of those things that are the um, the traits of a leader, but essentially if p- people don't believe that you are genuinely invested and that you're about the group and not just yourself, I think people's BS radar is quite attuned to that and will you'll get found out very, very quickly. And so the, that idea of being worthy of the group is a very interesting one. It's, it hasn't been put to me in that way. So there you go. I've learned something today from our discussion, Duncan. Thank you for that. I, I would, I'd like to ask you because you did go down the track of traits and you definitely touched on leader capabilities. So if I had to ask you to pick, the top capabilities. What what would what would those be for you? Leader capabilities. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think you've touched on it. Like, I've got a very large worth meter or worth. You know, I'm 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 constantly trying to say, is this worth it? Is this worthy? Is this person worth it? Worthy? And it's not so much. You know, I need to categorize this person so I can dismiss them or categorize this leader because I want to follow them or categorize. It's more about um, who and what you are. What's your authentic self? So where does authenticity come into it? And it's something that I've struggled with all my 55 years of, of my life. And it comes from a little bit of childhood trauma and, you know, that usual stuff of growing up in the in the 60s and the 70s in, in rural and regional Australia where uh, the economy was different. Things were tough. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. We had a large family, bush family. And so it was that striving, worthiness, um, childhood trauma of always trying to get just a little bit more, the cult of more. If you just had a little bit more, we'd be this. And, you know, the fights in our family home were about money all the time because we just had to stretch and stretch and stretch. So so my worthiness and my authenticity has been a clash because I've always placed uh, affluence on worth, worth on affluence. So, again, it's the size of the house, it's the cars, it's the boats, it's the toys, it's the job that you do, it's the, the things that you wear. And so I've always been hungry for that more for safety more will get me comfort that comfort will give me safety and therefore there's a worth on it okay and a worth column at 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 play for me that i have to protect myself against because that little boy is still wanting to be comfortable and safe with the toys and the bling and the more and you know when we look at social media and where we're going with all the sort of toys that we can buy in this affluent society in australia you know i've got to protect against myself so then the word to protect myself is the word authentic, authenticity. So I can I can circuit break this search for more bling or more comfort or more um, things in my life that will give me safety from that little boy trauma that I had because we grew up in a not a poor household but a tough household, right? So I'm I'm constantly doing that, and the way I circuit break that is saying, well, what's the authentic outcome here? 
I understand that I'm triggered and I'm compelled, but how do I move that compulsion into something? And the word I get is surrender and authenticity. So when I use those two words to sort of say, well, yes, I want this thing and I understand why I want this thing, but is it authentic to where we're traveling right now on the plan? <laughs> you know, no, it's not. Well, that's that's an easy one. There. And so for me, I'm always searching for that authentic leader who's not just trying to accumulate for the corporation or accumulate for the team or get comfortable himself. Um, I'm always looking for someone who's making the tough decisions for the authentic decision for the outcome that's been planned, regardless of the success profile coming into it. So as, as a leader puts the plan together and goes, right, this is the way we're going, I'm always looking for the authenticity of that. Why are we doing that? What will the outcome be? What will it deliver us as a team, as a group? Why would I follow that? Yeah, I, I like that, Duncan. The um, the the why of the person that you're with, particularly if they're a leader, uh, paints quite a picture into their soul in terms of how they they deal with people. Um, thank you for for sharing about your your background, your soul too, Eric. Because yeah. that's what you're doing. If you're following a leader, you're lining up your heart and his heart. You're doing it on purpose. So then you get get to ask yourself, why does this guy affect me like this? Or why does this woman lead like this? So what's their why? Now, what's in it for me? What's my why in this? Why is my why and that leader's why the same? And that's where the magic begins for us as the team, as the followers, because this is followership 101. We get leadership. Now, why do I want him to leave me? Why do I want to be in this team? Why do I want to follow that? And so that's when you go, right, so what's in it for me? And we could end up in that bucket again of trying to be comfortable, trying to assure myself that I'm going to be safe. Am I signing up because he's going to give me comfort? She's going to give me comfort. Am I signing up because this is a safe option for me and it's not going to put me at risk? So am I being authentic with the why to follow this leader and so there's two wide dynamics in that right and you've got to really get to the bottom of who and what you are and the why for you to be in this bloody team because otherwise you're just going along and you're hoping that they will be the superstar leader they will be completely delivering your comfort they will live up to it and in the moment they don't you feel betrayed and you go oh you said we're going to be here by now you said I'm going to have this toy. You said I'm going to be this in the team. And you're just a normal person. you know. Because my why wasn't strong enough and I just hooked on. But if I get into it and go, oh, okay, I want to be in this team because I want a new car. And you think, oh, that's interesting. What will a new car do for me? And is this team going to live up to that? And is that strong enough for me to be a follower and be in this team and be let him be my leader? So... The, the, all these conversations should be happening before you hook onto a team or a leader. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. The um, I came to thinking about the why question later in my career. I think um, on the come up, I was only really looking for how do I progress, how do I learn from people that are doing it better than me, and I understood that I didn't know every damn thing. But you get to learn um, as time goes along, and. Um, yeah, what's this triggered in my thinking is for me, um, I came to the why question a lot later in the career, but now it gives me some comfort that I can look for that. And without um, blatantly asking the person, give me a justification for your existence. Because sometimes people take that that uh, question in that, in that light and that's not what I've ever meant. It's more what drives you to do what you do. And um, in the various um, leadership roles that I've had, uh, I've, I'm doing that a little bit better, I think, as time goes along, that you make mistakes along the way and you wish you'd done some things different. But, um, yeah, the why is very important. Now, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this because we've all lived through it and you've you've said and, and, and um, preparing for the podcast, I realise how much public speaking you do. So you've probably met a lot of leaders in your travels. The COVID-19 pandemic and what that did in terms of people's leadership process and impact on them as leaders, what did you see out in the big bad world and what what lessons did you draw from what's gone on 
uh, I would say post-pandemic. I mean, we're out of the worst of it. But what what lessons did you draw out of it from a leadership point of view? If I can sort of take your mind there. Yeah, no, there's a there's a real alignment, realignment in terms of how we deliver messages, uh, how you deliver relationships with your teams and things like that. So what I saw was effective leaders just tool up in a different way. I saw leaders who um, well, were very charismatic, got on the front foot. Nobody knew where the COVID thing was going, so they were inquisitive and curious with how other leaders were handling it. So they're, they're, on, they're, they're casting this very, very wide net, you know, how you're engaging with your teams. How, how, what's the, what's the um, engagement look like? Um, how do I just do this stuff? You know, we're on screens, we're in our places, um, you're at home, I'm at home, we're in our offices. Okay, so what works in that environment? How do I bring you along? How do I connect you? How, how do I bring all the authentic hallmarks of the team that I've built now that big environmental changes have happened? You know, how do I reassure people? How, what does that look like on a screen? Um, is it with headphones? Is it with the background? Is it with um, fun trivia? Is it, you know, how do I tune this up? How do I retain my team and everything I've built just because of the conditions have changed and I want to keep them safe from something that we don't know where it ends? So I watched a lot of leaders roll the sleeves up and get to work in developing new ways to communicate, new ways to engage. And some of it fell flat. Some of it worked an absolute treat. And the guys and the leaders that I saw that were the most aggressive about retaining the teamwork or retaining their authenticity in how they built the team basically came out of it really, really quickly and got back to, hey, we're going to actually keep this part of the online stuff working from home two or three days a week because it works for us and our productivity is up. And here's the stats around that. But i tell you the truth, I just like the way we get together in our homes. And so I saw some teachers, uh, some teachers, some leaders go to their teams and say the first thing in, well, it's a privilege to be in your home with you today, right? Now, that's a simple statement, but it absolutely opens the mind to sort of say, well, I'm actually welcoming my team in my home for the first time in my whole work life in this team. They're actually joining me at home. So everybody started to get, you know, very house proud about which part of the home we're going to be. And, and some leaders said, okay, we're going to have a living room day. We're going to have the backyard day. And so, you know, they, they, they went into it with this mindset to sort of say, these are the conditions we're handling. Uh, we, we've got to handle. This is the way I want to keep my people safe. But there's going to be a lot of leadership in this and there's going to be teamwork and there's going to be authenticity. Now, some team members never turn their camera on in their home, and that's absolutely their privilege. And and these leaders would go, "Yep, yeah, no problem. I'm not. I don't want you to be anything you're not." You know. And then there was family family days, and then there was kids running around, and there's you know all this sort of thing, right? So I saw a lot of interesting things happen in a really tough situation. And 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 while I'm talking about leaders that I saw and instances that I that was part of, you know, there was a lot of leaders out there who were completely at sea with all of this. So, and couldn't wait to get back to work. And, you know, some of my, some of my mates in, in law firms, you know, they found it very, very difficult to do their work online when there's such people, 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 um, they're just person to person are leaders and they wanted to be out there leading and, and client meetings that they were not, no longer having. So, my, me personally, I took the kids out of school and we went around Queensland in the camp trail. Um, just be at the height of it because my business you know, on stage, not happening. Um, so I took the kids out of school and we just spent six months while the crazy sort of went on and the mandates were changing every two days um, because regional Australia seemed to be a lot more sunlight, a lot more freedom, a lot more openness and, and regional people were just approaching it differently because we're so spread out anyway. So really not the city, city dynamic where the fear was really palpable everywhere you went um so we went out and we did that and we came back six months later and it was sort of like the mandates were slowing down and things were getting back to normal again so uh again i led my family out of a crazy situation i had the privilege to do that i get it um and then we came back when things were a little bit more normalized and um and i was able to get going again yeah, that's, that's interesting. The um the response to COVID was very, like you said, and in some industries and law has come up a few times in my discussions that 
the legal profession, particularly when you're dealing with clients, you need to be face-to-face when that gets taken away, a core part of you, you delivering on your work and in your profession is to do that. And when that's not there, well, what the hell do you do to replace that scenario? And yeah, I, I like the the story around the the work from home, the, the Zoom and um, opening up your non-work environment to the work environment uh, to adapt. And yeah, I hadn't thought, I, I'd always thought uh, with um, these online, the etiquette that comes with the, this and not having a camera on says something about you, but it also says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to work in this way, but there's only so much I'll share of my private space. And I, I get that now. I hadn't given it a lot of thought. I always thought, well, if someone turns their camera off, they're just being not, they're not being part of the team, I guess. And that's not, the, and it's not the case, but hey, I, I, I bring a slightly different lens to it. I, I think we can't escape now the use of these platforms to do our work, but I think it's going to be part of a whole new lineup of how you engage in the world of work in some industries, because if you work in uh, manufacturing, you can't do manufacturing jobs like this. Yeah, exactly. Where where you need to be uh, the the medical field, doctors, well, not so much doctors, but say nurses that need to treat um, people in hospitals or in their home, this doesn't work. Uh, The telehealth stuff for doctors works fine. I've used it. I know others have used it. It's a it's a new way to engage, and and um, I think I'll take away from this discussion and others that COVID lit up some things we could have done better, and we started to do better. And I like the the feedback that you gave around some stuff just didn't work, and that's fine because that's kind of part of the process. You've got to test some things, and some things will work, and the the things that don't, okay, you've tried it, and hopefully you can share that with other people and say, hey, I've got this brilliant idea. No. We've done it, doesn't work, and this is why it doesn't work. So, yeah, and I see a fair bit of that now in the discussion amongst leaders that they will share just the stuff that did not work and why it didn't work. I I think I would draw more value from X, Y, Z didn't work. That's not enough for me. Well, why didn't it work? And maybe not, not enough resource put in or in some circumstances, and I'm sure you've met this, that a lot of resources were put into a new way of doing things and it just didn't work out. And that's yeah, that's the, that's the thing about you know, Eric, you're right onto it. See, leadership's scary. You know, leadership is throwing all these ideas out there and trying to gather the ones that work. And if we invest in the ones, we'll, we'll invest in all of them because that's what leadership is. You know, have to get you have to walk the tightrope of sort of like we're trying this something new. Now, how long do we stick to it while it's not working? How much time do we give it before it gets a turnaround? You know, we've got a lot of aspirations. We've built these decks. We've done this. We've done that. Um, we've told our customers. We've told our stakeholders we're going in this direction. How long do we stick with it before we roll it up and say that idea didn't work? And what does that do for my leadership currency? You know, oh, mate, like i got to tell you, leadership is difficult. But as a leader, you're always out there hunting for something that will enhance your team, invest in your team invest in your customers, invest in your stakeholders, invest in your strategy, tactics, whatever it is. Leadership is difficult. Now, we are talking about a COVID that's in our rear vision mirror somewhat, right? So we can talk with relax. But when we are in COVID, we didn't know when it was going to stop. So how am I going to, you know, I've got this environment that I don't know if it'll stop and I don't know if my, my team is actually going to be infected by it, hurt by it, unsafe, their family, our family. Am I going to get it? What does that look like for me and my family, my leadership, my corporate life? Um, you know, so there was all these unknowns. And the government was trying its best with, hey, let's separate, let's get out in the sun. Remember that? Two weeks to stop the spread. That's what the deal was. Vitamin D is good for you. Get outside, get outside. By the way, we're now going to lock you inside. You know, so we had this like cascading change of strategy that was unclear. And then we've had an irresponsible media telling us everybody's dying in America and everyone's dying in Europe and we're sitting there going, don't let anybody in. We're an island nation. Don't let them in. This is terrible. And then the state started to go, don't come over to our state. You know, all those Queenslanders who are infected, no way. Close the borders. So we're closing borders, locking ourselves away. And the narrative was changing. Now, as a leader in that environment, you're constantly just going, well, what's the best thing for my team? What's the best thing for a team? How do I lead this? How do I lead this? How do I reassure them? How do I feel? And then you've got the Victorians. And I was working for Telstra at the time. We had this enormous national team. And all the Victorians are, are locked up for a year. We're out at the beach. 
they're locked up. And as a leader, you're sitting there, okay, we've just, for the people outside Victoria, let's just be really sensitive. Let's not mention that we've been to the beach today. Let's not mention that we're going somewhere on the weekend. You know, because this is, as a leader, you're going, hey, everyone looking forward to the weekend? And the Victorians are like, what? You know what I mean? So, again, it's this, how do I lead? I think, um, and, and I'll give all due respect to our political leaders here, they were worried about deaths. They were worried about people's lives. And that that, that transcends your work, your leadership style, all of that stuff. I won't use the word crap. All that crap gets binned and you're worried about the human beings in the society. Mm-hmm. And I think the toughest jobs would have been those in the, the medical field and the front line and politicians trying to navigate all this in in the context. I, I don't know if I would call it personally irresponsible media. I think the media were just as caught out as anyone else in this. And once you do reporting, you set a certain narrative and that has some consequences. So um yeah, I, I found it I found it difficult myself. But and I might get your view on this before we go to the next question, Duncan, is around um in in dealing with this, I was an at-home worker for the last 10 years when COVID hit. So when people were talking about, oh, I can't be in the office anymore. I'm a people person. I'm like, what what, what can't you get over? I've been doing this for so I I didn't put myself in the other uh, shoes. I thought this you've got all these technologies, but my assumption was that people were already using this stuff in their normal work routine. And once you completely subvert people's work routine, things uh, your norms go out the window. And so um, I picked myself up very quickly on that because I like you. I've you've got I've got friends that are very much extroverts, very much energized by other people. I'm energized by other people too and my family, but I don't need it to start my day, whereas some need that human connection. And yeah. that that's going to have longer-term consequences, I think, that we're not quite seeing just yet. Yeah, no, look, society is different. Yeah. You can't have a global uh, environment that COVID threw up that doesn't change us. Now, you know, you had seniors at schools that didn't have graduation. You had universities who didn't get their diplomas. You had funerals that weren't attended. You had uh, marriages, uh, weddings cancelled. You know, this is all the fabric of society. And our kids today have lived through something that, you know, we got to do as adults. They got to do as kids. So there's damage there, right? So the next generation, uh, it might be a little bit more insecure about uh, normal flus might be insecure about sharing straws, might be insecure. You know, there's a whole new thing about washing your hands that our kids are completely indoctrinated into. And I, and I put it like this. When I grew up, we had an incinerator in our backyard and we used to burn our rubbish in Rockhampton in the 70s, right? Wow. Okay. You just used to burn it. It was the best job to be given as a kid. Yeah. Because you get fired of things three or four times a week. Right. Right. <laughs> In our backyard. Hopefully you're not doing that now, Duncan. <laughs> if I put a plastic bottle in the wrong bin at my place, my kids lose their mind. Yep. Right? Because yep. they know the value of recycling. Now, I'm an old cynic. I'm 55-year-old and I'm cynical. And I go, uh, are you really going to rely on the council to get that absolutely 100% right? Because you're representing that they're perfect. And my kids are like, Dad, just do it. You're killing the ocean if you don't. And I'm like, oh, well, show me some evidence of that. So look, and there is evidence out there, and they love to jam it straight up my bum. But what I'm saying is, um, you know, their world is that world, right? And post-COVID, their world is this world. Now, you and I are old crusties. We've seen a lot of things, and we have confidence about who and what we are, and we'll make our own decisions, and we'll find our own data and our own evidence to believe something. How dare you, sir? Old and crusty. I'm 48 years old, mate. I'm, I'm not I'm not middle-aged just yet. Well, let me tell you, it's not your world anymore, brother. <laughs> no, it, it really, really <laughs> isn't. You, you mentioned um, interacting with your kids, the recent flu stuff that's been... Um, Uh, discussed in the media one of my sons who remained nameless immediately went to hey what are we going to do about this when it comes and flus come every year you deal with it you get sick or you don't and you sort of move on so i 
yeah, I get it. It's it's um what I what I haven't given a lot of thought to because my kids were a little bit older. They weren't really young when COVID hit. What is this going to mean longer term for how they deal with the world around them? When um when you talk about a pandemic that it impacted how everyone thought about lots of different things, and I don't think I've had a uh what, what not a um an exit interview, but a, a chat with my kids around what did you think about all this and how are you feeling about it post um the pandemic? And they'd look at me weird, and I'd never ask them the question, but um I think there's lots of parents in my position that didn't really do a detox after. And just assume that people will adapt and get over it. And I'm thinking, well, what are we getting over? And what I get over out of the out of the pandemic will be different to youth. And take that one step further. People that we went through as up and coming emerging leaders through COVID, what are the what are the positives that they'll take out of that process as they age into their leadership careers? Versus those that, and I'll use your term, the old and crusties that have been there and went through COVID. But what has, how does it change? Has it changed our view of leadership, or was it a blip in what we did, and we're going back to old um, habits? I, I, I think the jury's still out on that, personally. But do you have a view? Yeah, like um, what you're talking about is the leadership journey in a nutshell, mate. As a leader of your family, you've got to get curious and inquire. And you've got to take that on board and see what it means in terms of your behaviours and your strategy. So what's your strategy as a father? What's your strategy as the leader of your family? Then what do you know about your team? What is your team thinking? Because that's all leadership is, is basically getting down to who and what your team are, what they're thinking and how how useful is that for the team to move forward and the strategy that you've set, right? So if you, you're setting a strategy to make your children capable in this world and the world has markedly changed with COVID, then you've got to drill down into who and what they are in this change in COVID and the world that it is today. And the only way to do that is to ask simple questions. How are you feeling? Why do you feel that? How's that going for you? What does that make you do in terms of your behaviours? Can we work on this together? If it's if it's a bit dark or if it's really light and aspirational, you go, right, well, how'd you get there? Who taught you that? You know, what are your friends saying? Who are they interacting with? So it's basically just leadership 101 drilling into who and what your team is and then deploying put them on the right seat on the bus to get to the strategy that you all agree on almost there duncan in terms of questions but i won't let you go without asking this one the nature versus nurture questions are, are leaders born or are they made yeah no it's a good one um it's one of those questions that i think a lot of people spend a lot of time on as we try to recruit leaders or drive society with good and authentic people in the leading programs, you know, just the government dynamic alone, you know, how does the government choose who's going to be our leaders? How do we choose a society? Who's going to be a leader? What are the traits? Are they born or are they developed? You know, how does the military go about forming up leadership strategies to get these people in, you know, these high positions to be authentic and everything like that? And, you know, there's a, there's a fail and win rate there, I'm sure. Um, the Olympics is the same. Sports the same. Go to any sport. How do we choose our leaders? What is that? What are the traits we're looking for? How do we recognise them? Are they born, or is it the environment that we can put together to actually form leaders up? Do we have a leadership environment, or are we just specialists? Or you know, how do we expose young people to great and authentic leaders, and does that help them in their leadership pathways, or is it completely about the family they grew up in? Dad was a really, really strong person. Mum was a fantastic mother. So they got the provide and protect right and they've got the support and nurture right. So with those two or four really, really strong traits and behaviours that invested into their kids with authenticity, this leader emerges. Is that it? It's interesting, isn't it? My opinion is it's a combination of both. I'm sitting on the fence. I'm getting a splinter right up my ring by saying (laughs) I think it's all of those things put together that makes a leader. There's no secret source from either the nurture or the nature argument because all the way through history, you've got people who grew up in a terrible environment that be- become so authentic and great charismatic leaders, right? And then you've got other people who grew up in the perfect environment to be a great leader and they turn into a criminal. You know, it's, you can't, you just can't, look at one or the other it is a combination of both but what i will say is 
authenticity shows up in both of those environments, nurture and nature. And if you have authenticity being invested in young people in some way, shape or form, then they've got half a chance of becoming a leader, a good leader. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, Duncan, last question here. Looking back on your travels through elite sport and our leadership pathway and talking to leaders and, and having these conversations, if you had to go back to a younger version of yourself, what would you say to yourself of being a, about being a more effective leader? Uh, I would scream in my face, work out who and what you are and stop chasing things that are not worthy. <laughs> Do the work, invest in you instead of in things. Okay. Invest in you instead of stuff that you think will keep you safe. That's what I would have said to myself. And through that process, I think I would have um, understood what qualities I had to lead. And one thing before I do go, um, and this, I should have done this earlier and talked to you about this earlier, but um, in terms of um, a final takeaway from you from the discussion, what would you share with those that are listening or following the podcast around uh, leadership what comes to mind I think I think talking to people and how they approach leadership is the gold that's it well that's where the panning of the gold is because everybody comes to their leadership journey a very very different way we are unique and we have unique lessons all the way along and it's those lessons expressed by people with lived experience in them good and bad challenging and sad okay that is the goal. And so we've got to get together and listen to people talk, listen to their experience, because you can fight about footy. You can argue about politics. You can disagree about colours, okay, but you can't fight about a man's story because that's all he's got. And it's in that story that his leadership qualities come out and his journey. So the nurture and nature is in our stories. And so we have to get into forums where we can hear people's hard-fought lessons in life and then reflect, see if you want to adopt some, give a go, the old Aussie go, and see where it ends up. But it'll always teach you something, and there's value in that. That concludes this podcast. I'd like to thank you for joining us, but in particular, I'd like to thank Duncan for his time and insights into his leadership pathway. I look forward to your company. If you like the content, please drop a like or if you can subscribe to help us grow the channel. Have a great day, rest of your week, and we'll catch you all on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.